child and just being so eager to grow up. How, how many of you remember what that feeling was like and you just, you just felt like you couldn't get there fast enough when you were really little. You, all you wanted was that driver's license so you could drive and then you got the driver's license and it was, man, I just can't wait to graduate and, and leave home. And then when you got to maybe college or out in the real world, you said, man, I, I wish I could go back home and mom would buy my food again. But Wherever we are, whatever station in life, it's always very, very difficult to imagine the next station or the station after that. For example, Julie and I are just a couple of months in on this whole empty nest thing, and we're still very much figuring it out. It's awesome and it's great, but it's still very new and very strange to us. But there is one station in life that... I believe you can absolutely figure out and tell what it's going to be like within a microscopic margin of error. And that station of life is your legacy. Every single one of us will have a legacy at some point. What people think about when we're no longer around, the people closest to us, the people kind of in that next outer band of relationship, we all can identify exactly what our legacy will look like. And I'll tell you how in just a second. Now, from the time that I can remember, every time I have gone to get my hair cut by someone new, there is a predictable pattern to this new relationship. I'll sit down in the chair, and of course the person cutting my hair will say something to the effect of, you know, well, what are we doing today? And, and they'll ask, you know, what's going on? And and I'll say, you know, just do la, 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 and they'll sit, and they'll go, okay, fine. They put the cape around, and they, they begin cutting and making small talk. And almost without fail, I can tell whether I'm looking or not at what's really going on or paying attention. I can tell when this new hair cutter has gotten to the very back of my head. Because on the very back of my head, I have two really pronounced cowlicks, and Almost without fail, when that new person gets to my calyx, there's a, there's a pause in the conversation and a, oh, wow, as if to say, whoa, whoa that, that's unusual. I, I, man, I don't know. What, what do they usually do with these things back here? And I have to explain to them, it's really not that dangerous. Don't worry about them. Just whack them and let's move on. It's not that big a deal. Now, I told you that to tell you this. Our son, Joseph, has the exact same shaped head as me and has two cowlicks in exactly the same place, kind of on those back two points of the noggin back here, left and right. And so when Joseph was very, very little and I, I would carry him around and we were walking down the street from behind, it looked like I was carrying my mini-me. 
His calyx, my calyx matched identically because that's just something that I handed down to Joseph. Now, hair patterns and skin tone and nose, colors of the eye and other things are those things that we hand down genetically and they're DNA markers and chromosomes that conspire to make up who we are physically and biologically. But we pass down a legacy every bit as surely as we pass down our chromosomes, every bit and even more profoundly and spiritually we hand down to those who will follow us, whether they are direct descendants or people in our sphere of influence, every single one of us has a legacy. You've got a legacy. I've got a legacy. All God's children got a legacy. The question remains, what will your legacy be? How will you know what your legacy really, really is. As I said just a second ago, you can predict this within a microscopic margin of error. The legacy you leave looks like the life you lead. The legacy you leave will look exactly like the life you lead. Where you go, how you treat people, how you conduct business, how you celebrate, how you mourn, how you handle setbacks, all of those things conspire just like chromosomes and DNA to determine the legacy we will leave. For the last few weeks as a church, we have been involved in this series called Thrones. And just for those of you who may be here for the first time, we, we don't do this all the time. This throne is really a prop. It's a, it's a symbol. It's a representation of this drive that every single one of us has to chart our own course and determine our own destiny. We like to call the shots in our lives, as well as the fact that when you step into a relationship with Christ, when a person responds to Jesus' grace initiative, they enter into a process of redefining royalty, of redefining what it looks like to be royal in this world because the Bible says that Christ followers are to be a royal priesthood. And so for the last few weeks, we've been looking at what that means and what that looks like. How do we manifest that mandate by looking at the life of King David? Now, for those of you who have been around throughout this series, you know that David was a fascinating character and lived a fascinating life. And so it's appropriate that today, at the end of this series, we would find David at the very end of his life. And we've gone through the biblical narrative, the biblical record of David's life, beginning in 1 Samuel, tracing the ark through 2 Samuel. Today we find David about to die. He knows that his days are numbered. And in the Bible, in 1 Kings, the Bible records a conversation that David had with his son, Solomon. His son, Solomon, who was not only his son, but would also be his successor. And in this conversation with his successor son, David explains his hopes, his prayers, his dreams for legacy. And in so doing, he shows us how we go about building a legacy. In 1 Kings, the Bible says this about this conversation. Look at what it says. 
at the time of King David's death approached, he gave this charge to his son Solomon. He said, I am going where everyone on earth must someday go. Take courage and be a man. Well, that, that's a great turn of a phrase right there, isn't it? You, you can almost picture this scene with David talking to Solomon, and, and you know what it's like. Sometimes as people approach death, you, you know that it's happening. David is dwindling at this point. The, the light of his life is flickering, and, and he knows that he's not long for this world. And so he talks to Solomon, and he says, I want you to understand something. You are about to be a part of something bigger than yourself. And you see this when he says, take courage and be a man. Take courage and be a man. David is setting the stage here to show us that we have to encourage those who follow. It's imperative. If you want to build a legacy of people who will follow you, again, these may be your children and grandchildren, and they may be just people that are in your sphere of influence. But as you're building a legacy, you have to encourage those who will follow. I love what Alex mentioned just a second ago when we were talking about the offering here this morning and what's God, what God is doing in our high school and our middle school ministries, not only on Wednesday night, but that's why we are inviting and calling high school and middle school students to serve and to lead in elementary school and LHC kids. Because we want elementary school kids who maybe are in first grade, second grade, or fourth and fifth grade to have a vision, to, to see middle school kids who are genuinely following Christ day in and day out, and high school kids, and they can say, man, I, my parents are old. I, I can't picture what that looks like, but I can picture middle school. I can picture high school, and so I want, I want to be like that. I, I, want to, I want to follow Christ faithfully, and we can show them through the lives of middle school and high school kids that you can absolutely follow Christ faithfully and boldly. You don't have to be the weird Christian at school, and you can really and truly live that out. And elementary school kids are encouraged because of what they see by being around them. So that's one of the great benefits and blessings that God is leading us to as a church, that their example from high school and middle school is lifting up the generation below them. Now, it's a generation that's only about three grades in school behind them, but they're still behind him. They're still following that example. That's what David is doing in the life of Solomon. He's saying, Solomon, I want you to understand the big picture. Check this out. He says to encourage those who follow. He goes on from there. He says, observe the requirements of the Lord your God and follow all his ways. Keep the decrees, the commands, the regulations, and the laws written in the law of Moses so that you will be successful in all you do and wherever you go. So that you will be successful. So there's this, this element of encouraging, but there's also this element of instructing those who follow to really and truly teach and guide them and say, this is what God says, and this is why your life works better if you follow what God says. This is, this is a critical component, I think, that a lot of times as parents we fail to do. We'll, we'll teach them or we'll you know, make sure that they go to church to get good values, but it's imperative that we can 
instruct those who follow not only in what the Bible says, but why the Bible says it. David had lived this out. When he says, I want you to follow all of the decrees of Scripture, the law of Moses. Remember that it was David who wrote the longest chapter in the entire Bible. Psalm chapter 119, the longest chapter in the whole Bible. And the whole chapter is devoted to the benefit and the blessing of Scripture. Every single bit of it. Every single verse of the longest chapter of the Bible talks about the benefit and the blessing of Scripture. Your word, O oh God, is a light unto my path, a lamp unto my feet. I will follow it. I will delight in your decrees. There is this, this sense of instructing the next generation and creating a legacy that is rooted in a relevance and a consistent adherence to God's word, to celebrating it. Now, real quickly, I want to I step away from David's life for just a brief moment, but I want to show you what we've done over the last few weeks as a church. As I said, we've studied the life of David from 1 Samuel all the way to this day of his death in 1 Kings. So there's 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings. And as we've traced the narrative throughout his life, we've pulled out principles and precepts to discover what life in a relationship with God actually looks like. We, we've discovered who God is and how he operates, how he chooses those he uses, how he, he selects sometimes the least likely people, but those who have the greatest heart for him. David was a forgotten son out tending daddy's sheep on the back 40 when God said, that's the one that will lead my people. We, we discovered that it was David's faithfulness in the little things that prepared him for the big things. But because he was faithful and protected his father's sheep, he was ready when it came time to slay the giant Goliath with a slingshot. We, we saw that it was David's respect for authority and the blessing that authority is in his life that kept him from harming King Saul, who was already on the throne, and David's respect for authority is something that God honored throughout his life, and it was, it was a reality that you see over and over and over again. There was also the reality that nothing threatens success like success, and it was at the peak of his personal power that David fell with Bathsheba, and, and we kind of established, I think, the fact that David's fall with Bathsheba is presented in the biblical record so that... God could warn us when we might get puffed up ourselves, but also to show us that the road to restoration leads through repentance. And what repentance actually looks like when you're moving in one direction and you do an about face and begin moving back with God that you were created to live in relationship with. And so all of these things we've been able to glean from the biblical record you and I have now seen and understood and discovered how life works better just by looking at this one portion of the Bible and picking out of it these principles and these precepts that hopefully if we will apply and use Monday through Saturday, all of a sudden the biblical record comes alive and you realize why it's there. You understand why the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 4, really and truly, when you study the Bible, the Bible studies you. 
When you look at what the Bible says, it's not just so that you can learn some cool facts and dazzle your friends at the water cooler at work. But you learn, you, you come to understand more about who you are in light of who God is and therefore how the world works better. This is why the Bible says this in Hebrews chapter 4. For the word of God is alive and powerful. The Bible's not just a book, folks. It is sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. It's an incredible tool to go to the Word of God and say, God, help me to study this and allow it to study me. Help me to be everything you created me to be. Help me to be transformed by the renewing of my mind by what I put into my mind. Julie and I have been watching some really fascinating nonfiction TV lately. And I'm not going to mention the name of the show that we've been watching because you would know it. But there is some wackadoodle-doo stuff available for self-improvement on TV. How many of you have seen some wackadoodle stuff on TV? Let me just see a show of hands. Now, again, I honor the attempt to help people. I think that's really good. But I get a little concerned when people start attributing acts and works and principles and precepts that God has given us biblically to the universe or to the energy that you define as a higher power. Again, I think that can be a powerful step along the journey to coming to know God more personally, but it does God such a massive disservice. God is love. The universe ain't love. The universe, it's not positive energy put out there somewhere. And I know we all live in Austin, the heaven of positive energy, but I'm just saying, God is love. He is relational. And so it's imperative that we instruct those who follow us in what he says biblically that we learn it and discover it and then figure out why he says it. I think this is one of the primary reasons that a lot of people go to a lot of trouble to discount Scripture, to mock Scripture, because it does read our souls. It, it does point out the things in our lives that need to change. It is absolutely useful for teaching correcting, rebuking, for training, for equipping. And a lot of times I've read the Bible and went, ooh, that's, man, that, that's pretty much reading my mail right there. I, I, and, and I try, sometimes, have you ever done this? Have you ever read something in the Bible and thought, you know what, that's a context problem. <laughs> that was written 2,000, 3,000 years ago. That's not about me. Most of the time. Context problems in my life, scripturally, have turned out to be Mac problems. Things that I need to change because I am not God. That's what David was telling Solomon here. If you will follow what God says 
scripturally, your life will work better. It just does. So I don't like, you know, I can't believe a loving God would give us all these rules and commands. Listen, every relationship has rules. Every relationship has rules. Some of them are written down, some of them are not. If you've been around church here for a long time, I've shared this with you before. Julie and I have a rule. She prefers, because we're married, she prefers that I don't kiss other women. That's just one of her little rules. Kind of quirky, I know, but so consequently, I don't. Ever. That's not like a small little, oh, honey, I'm sorry, I forgot about that rule. No. That would not go well for your pastor. But we've got to instruct those who follow us. Because, well, I don't, I don't want to impose my values on my kids. And I understand where that comes from. But it's wrong. Somebody will impose their values on our children. And God has given mothers and fathers the responsibility and the authority and the accountability to be the ones who instruct their children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Train up a child in the way he should go. You know who wrote that? David's son Solomon. Train up a child in the way he should go. That means there is a way they should go. And that's exactly where David takes Solomon next in this conversation. He says, if you do this, then the Lord will keep the promise he made to me. He told me, if your descendants live as they should and follow me faithfully with all their heart and soul, one of them will always sit on the throne of Israel. So, David starts by encouraging Solomon. Then he instructs him. But here at the very end, at the very, very end, David moves and inspires Solomon who will follow him. He inspires him. He says, Solomon, you're called to something much bigger than yourself. And what David was describing for Solomon was much, much more than a promise that Solomon would reign over Israel. David was actually referring to the covenant, not only that God had made with himself, but to the covenant that predated David by about eight or 900 years. If you go all the way back to God's initial engagement with Abraham, at the time known as Abram. God brought Abram along and he said, Abram, I will make of your family a great nation. Now this was a comical statement at the moment. You know what Abram's family consisted of at that moment? Him and Sarah, Sarai. It was just the two of them. That was it. And they were old. I mean, old had had no children. And God tells them, I will make of you a great nation. The Bible says that Sarah actually laughed when God said that she would become a mother. She, (laughs) oh Lord, you kidder. But again, 
God chooses those he uses in ways that you and I can't grasp. And Abraham and Sarah, imperfect as they were, and believe me, they were, became the tribes of Israel. And then the tribes of Israel became the nation of Israel. And after Abraham and Sarah and Joseph, the tribes of Israel, the nation of Israel was enslaved in Egypt, the Bible says, for centuries. Slaves in Egypt, great nation, awesome. But God wasn't done with them. And you and I know the story of Moses and the Exodus and how God led them out of Egyptian slavery and through the wilderness. And in that wilderness wandering gave them the Ten Commandments, the parameters for relationship that they would need to be the great nation that he had called them to be in order to occupy the promised land. And they went into the promised land and they began to fight and claim it. And it was in David's reign that Israel discovered the peace and the prosperity of God. And under David's reign, Israel was united and unified and pacified. They, they, were, they were at peace. And so David plays a critical role, not only historically, but genealogically. David was a direct ancestor of Jesus. The Bible says in the New Testament that Jesus' earthly father, Joseph, was a son of David. Remember when Mary and Joseph went to Bethlehem where Jesus was born, they went there to take a, a census that the Roman Empire had commanded, and they went to Bethlehem because they were of the house and the line of David. But there's a spiritual significance to David that transcends history and genealogy as well. And the spiritual significance is that David, if you remember, as we said, he was the shepherd who became the king. And it was David who was the foreshadowing of the perfect shepherd king, Jesus. Jesus who is the good shepherd. Jesus who, who knows his sheep by name. Jesus who leaves the 99 safe to go and find the one who's lost. Jesus, whose sheep know his voice. And this Jesus, who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the seat of all authority and power in the universe. And David is the one who paints that picture that Israel begins to start to sort of understand what they're looking for as they're waiting and praying and longing for Messiah. And about 250 years after David died, David died around 1,000 years before Christ. And about 250 or so years after that, the prophet Isaiah, under inspiration from the Holy Spirit of God himself, kind of puts David's life in, in context. And I would suggest to you maybe... Isaiah puts David's life kind of in, in, a, in a box and wraps it up and puts a bow on it as a Christmas present that's going to be opened 750 years later when Jesus is born in that first Christmas morning. This is what Isaiah says. He says, out of the stump of David's family. Isn't that a terrible term? 
the stump of David's family. Because you'll remember, Israel ended up rebelling against God, and they ended up in Babylonian and Assyrian captivity. But they were still there, but they were a stump. Out of the stump of David's family will grow a shoot. Yeah, yes, a new branch bearing fruit from the old root. And in that day, the heir to David's throne will be a banner of salvation to all the world. The nations will rally to him, and the land where he lives will be a glorious place. You see, what what God started way, way, way back with Abram, who became Abraham, and continued and perpetuated through Moses and then David in covenant relationship found its full fruition. It came into its fullest flower, in its greatest power, in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the promise fulfilled that an heir of David's would always sit on the throne of Israel. Jesus is the one who is the banner of salvation for all the world. And it is Jesus who invites you and me 2,000 years after he walked on the earth, 3,000 years after David, Jesus invites you and me into a royal priesthood. (laughs) For you and me, to redefine this world's concept of royalty. He invites us into that. You want to talk about being something, being a part of something bigger than ourselves. This is what he has called us to. This is what we get to participate in. And it begins with a step of faith. A step of faith. Moving away from God in everything that we're about and just doing an about face to walk with him in everything that we do. I want to ask you to bow your heads for just a moment. And I wonder this this morning If you have ever personally opened that box that Isaiah wrapped up over 2,700 years ago, that box that contains the context around the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. That context of calling into a relationship. If you're here today and you've never done that, why not now? It doesn't take a, an elaborate ceremony. You don't have to pass a test. 
All it takes is to follow the example set by David, to be a man, to be a woman after God's heart. If that's you today, then we want to invite you. We want to give you the opportunity to do that right now, just to pray right where you're sitting. A prayer of commitment, a prayer of beginning. Just pray silently. And I want to invite you to eliminate, ignore every distraction. You focus on what God is doing right now in your life. And just pray silently. Just say, silently, just say, Jesus, I need you. I confess my sin to you. And I claim the promise of forgiveness in you. And I will follow you with everything I have from this moment forward. Jesus, I pray this prayer in your name. If you would, just remain with your heads bowed for a moment. But if that was your prayer today, couple of things you need to I want to make sure that you know number one you need to know this is the most important moment of your life nothing else matters as much as this and second of all you need to know that you're amongst family it's what the church is we're a family of faith joined together by our need for Jesus. By the celebration of our need and of his sufficiency. And so we would love to be that family of faith for you. When you came in this morning, you got a program. And inside that program, there's a place, there's a place there that says connect grow and serve that card is for you if you just stepped into that relationship with Christ I want to ask you to fill that card out and before you leave today make a moment just make the time for a brief personal connection and hand that card to one of our ushers they've got the blue Lake Hills Church shirt on or on your way out you can stop at the little canopy there that says LHC and hand it to someone standing under that Because we want to be that family of faith for you. We want to serve you as you grow in this new relationship. Nobody's going to show up on your doorstep unannounced or or anything like that. We just want to help. And so as our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed for just a moment more, if you just prayed to step into that relationship, I want to ask you to mark this moment by raising your hand. Just raise your hand and hold it up high over your head for just a moment. to celebrate this moment, to mark it down so that you know it's real. 
And then also to know that as a church, we celebrate that with you. We honor that. As you put your hands down, we put our hands together and tell you, welcome home. Welcome home.